Buckle up, it's time for That's How I Roll with Jeremiah Isley, a podcast about the games we play and the lives we live. That's How I Roll is presented by Theology of Games. Visit theologyofgames.com for the latest in tabletop gaming, news, reviews, and interviews. And now, here's Jeremiah. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 93 of That's How I Roll. That's right. The countdown continues. The march goes on to number 100. I'm Jeremiah Isley. Thanks so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. I want to give you a quick rundown. I've got a really cool episode up for you today. Let me give you that rundown of what you can expect here today on That's How I Roll. Uh, We are going to check out the word on the street. The word on the street is... I couldn't. I didn't think life could be busier, but it is. So there's that, and we also have a very special guest joining us in this week's Real Talk segment. Mr. Randy Hoyt of Foxtrot Games will be joining us. So that's a little bit about what you can expect on this episode. Before we get into all of that, I want to remind you... You can become a part of what we do here on Theology of Games, and that's how I roll. By being a member of our Patreon community, you can head over to theologyofgames.com slash Patreon and check out all of the uh, awesome levels there for you to become a member of uh, the community, become a patron. There's lots of cool rewards that you can get in on and... I'm going to make a little secret announcement here. I I guess it's not secret because I'm announcing it, but we just got a copy of Tower of Madness from Smirk and Dagger Games. Check out Instagram. It's all over the place. It's really, really cool looking and it's actually really fun too. We've got a copy of that to give away. And what we're going to do is we're going to set a backer level, a patron level, if you will. Once we hit 25 patrons on our Patreon account, we will give away a copy of Tower of Madness. So there it is. Um, Doesn't matter what level you're at. You can literally just pledge at a dollar a month and you'll be in the running to get this sweet, sweet game. And we'll be doing more contests like that in the days, weeks, and months ahead. So there's that. Of course, you can always follow us on all the social media channels, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're even getting Snapchat up and running. So find us there. And of course, I should remind you, we have two other podcasts, the Theology of Game podcast, as well as Board Games Daily. So if you didn't can't get enough by this one week, once a week installment, You can certainly get your fill elsewhere. Okay, that's going to do it for the rundown. Let's check out the word on the street. So the word on the street is, like I said, man, life is busy. We, so there's this crazy thing happening. I'm going to kind of work backwards from today through last week. Have you ever heard of a heat day? (laughs) So here in Ohio, we have snow days all the time. Like school gets canceled because there's a ton of snow that came down overnight. 
it's not safe for the buses. It's not safe for kids to be traveling in the morning or whatever. So they just call it. They say no school today. Well, we have had uh, yesterday, well, today and coming up tomorrow. So the day that this releases, we've had two days now that they have canceled school because the heat index is ridiculously high. Now, that's only in some of the schools because the new high school in town has air conditioning. So they're like, whatever, go to school. But the middle school where my oldest son goes and the elementary school where my second oldest child goes have no air conditioning. So they have decided that it's just, it's not safe. There's no way anybody's going to learn anything. Everybody's just going to be melting in their chairs. And they have decided to have snow day or snow days, heat days. So we obviously took advantage of that. And we uh, had ourselves a little swim party in the pool today. We had a bunch of kids, lots of fun. Not only was that crazy busy and Oh my gosh, now we've got this super extended holiday weekend. We went to Idlewild, which is a cool little amusement park in Western Pennsylvania, about a couple hours away. Then uh, I worked all day on Saturday. So that was Sunday. And then Saturday, I worked all day. Friday, I had a bachelor party, went to a really, really cool escape room. And let me ask you this, now that I bring up escape rooms, I am under the impression Well, I wouldn't say I'm under the impression, but I hold fast to the belief that if you are doing an escape room, you, my friend, are LARPing. Yes, you are live action role playing because any and every escape room that I have ever looked at or researched or been a part of has something to do with you playing the role of somebody trying to accomplish something. So you are in live action trying to solve puzzles or find clues or whatever it is, but there is a premise to this. Like the one we did, there was um, something went down and your mob boss sent you in to find some whiskey and some money and you had to get those and find where they were hidden. And then you were basically completing the mission, the, the task that your boss had sent you in on. So we live played this scenario out where we had to find clues and open different doors and secret passageways. And it was very, very cool, but everybody likes to dog on the the LARPers out there because, oh, that's super nerdy and, oh, I would never do something like that. Meanwhile, escape rooms are popping up all over the place. So I'd like to know what you guys think about that. Where do you come in on this whole topic? Because I firmly believe, and I have no problem with it, that you're LARPing if you're in an escape room. It's just a different genre or a different style of live action role play. Not a big deal. All right. So there's that. So it's just been a very, very busy week. I haven't actually played many games uh, outside of the escape room thing uh, over this last week. But that's uh, that's kind of the word on the street. Things are super, super busy. I'm getting ready to handle another day with the kids home and that craziness in the middle of the week. 
Uh, I'm not getting much other work done, as it were, <laughs> but we're trying to power through this week with this extended weekend. So there's the word on the street. We are going to get into this very, very cool interview with Randy Hoyt from Foxtrot Games. Foxtrot Games has made some really, really cool games, including Relic Expedition and Lanterns, the Harvest Festival, and their most recent release, Spy Club, which you will be finding a review of on the site very, very soon. Uh, it, It looks really, really cool. So we talk about all of that. We talk about just all kinds of very cool stuff and uh, it's going to be super awesome. So stay tuned. Here we go. All right. Well, it's time for this week's Real Talk segment and riding shotgun with me today is Randy Hoyt of Foxtrot Games. Randy, thanks for joining us today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. No problem. No problem. I know you're a busy guy. We caught you on your lunch break. All that, you know, the things that we do to make things work, right? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So Foxtrot Games, you guys have been around for a while. Um, Tell me how the name Foxtrot came to be. Is there some kind of special meaning behind that to you or or what's the deal there? Yeah, so naming things is really hard in any creative endeavor. And every game, every product, everything we do, there's always a struggle to come up with a name. And the company name is the same. I've always been a fan of foxes, especially from thinking like Aesop's Fables and the fox character in there uh, has known to be clever and cunning. And that's a lot of the skills you need when you play games, being able to, uh, you know, think cleverly, think uh, up new ideas and, and strategies to play in games. So that was kind of the beginning of it. And over time, it's sort of come to mean more. So it's the name of a popular dance. Uh, Mm-hmm. you know the foxtrot yeah. and it's a pretty accessible dance as far as they go and it's the same kinds of games we like to make things that are easy to pick up but allow players to have you know you sort of use their imagination to express a bit more it's sort of a free form there's there's structure to the dance and i'm not personally a dancer but <laughs> um there's some structure to it and it's pretty simple and in the main step players move like a knight in chess so it has some uh some nice ties there so the idea of uh, being a fox, playing games, picking up approachable uh, dance steps. Uh, and the dance itself is very uh, long-lasting. And so that's something we wanted to make games that people would would be easy to learn, they could continue to play, and that they would play for a very long time. I mean, I have no idea if people will be playing any of our games for 100 years, like people uh, dance the foxtrot still today. But that's the hope, is to make things that last, that mean things in people's lives are easy to pick up and uh, that will stick with them. That's great. Um, I always think when I hear the Foxtrot in terms of the dance, I think of, I think it's the Charlie Brown, like new year's Eve special or something. They learn how to do the Foxtrot and there's a little song they sing. It just throws me back to my childhood for some reason. It's yeah. Weird. We thought sometime about at a convention having dance lessons or something, but as we're not, <laughs> I don't know if anybody on the team is a dancer that I don't know if we can pull that off. Right. <laughs> you, can put like the, you can put like the footprint things with the numbers on it, yeah. like in the booth floor. That'd be yeah, great. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so let's go a little further back from Foxtrot. How did you get into gaming in general? Why, what made your life path choose tabletop gaming as, as sort of a, a hobby or a recreational activity? I mean, growing up, we played games. Uh, 
all kinds of games, mostly the popular games, I guess, Scrabble, Yahtzee, uh, Clue, those kinds of games. Um, I love playing cards. So once I sort of figured out that you can play an infinite number of solitaire games with playing cards as a kid, that's something I spent a lot of my time doing, playing Klondike and other solitaire games with cards. I think if uh, we'd had phones and apps when I was a kid, I maybe wouldn't have gotten so much into it, but I could play a lot of games with playing cards. Um, you know, and then eventually I went to college and that's where I discovered games like Axis and Allies. And I think one of the yeah. first games that really got me into modern gaming was uh, the GIF series, the Project GIF series. It's a series of abstract games. Okay. Uh, I read an interview with the designer and it sort of occurred to me for the first time that Games were made by people. They didn't just sort of descend out of the annals of <laughs> history or from the sky already made, and that real people were designing games for other people to play. And that sort of got me interested. Uh, one of the games in that series is sort of the first game I pre-ordered or knew about before it came out uh, from Funnigan Games uh, online back then. Um, so that was really my first start into that. Um, and then discovered uh, sort of the more modern Euro-y type games, Catan, Carcassonne, sure. Pandemic, Dominion, just sort of that whole, that style of games from the early 2000s uh, really got me into, we, we were playing games all the time, playing lots of games. Um, you know, I definitely prefer the lighter games uh, to uh-huh. more heavier games, Catan, Carcassonne, those kinds of games right. were what we played mostly. And we played, my wife and I played two-player games and we played with other couples. So lots of four-player games. Uh, yeah. So how did you how did you go make that transition from, hey, I like to play these games. It's really cool to, I'm going to make one and I'm going to publish it and that, all the craziness that ensues from that. Yeah. So, I mean, even as a kid, I designed games and I, I have very fond memories of designing my own solitaire playing card game that that I played a lot as a kid, maybe a middle schooler. Uh, you know, we did lots of games in school. And they were usually like roll and move trivia games. But like I always had a, I always tried more than the assignments and tried tinkering around with other games. Um, mm. Then when when Kickstarter really started to come online and, and people started funding board games on Kickstarter, that's when I started to get serious about making a game and seeing if we could make it all the way through as a product. So my uh, stepbrother is an artist, graphic designer in Portland, Oregon. And he and I just decided we should try to make a game and do it end to end. And we had Kickstarter as sort of a valid uh, go-to-market strategy. So that's what really got us thinking about it. I never really explored much designing a game and pitching it to a publisher, going the more traditional route. Um, I wasn't even really sure how even though we were playing games made by designers that got pitched to publishers, I didn't quite know how that would all work. So it was the rise of Kickstarter that got me interested in, in trying that. Uh, and at first I wasn't sure if it was just going to be a, let's make a game and put it on Kickstarter, um, cross that item off the bucket list. And, uh, that'll be a thing we once did. And maybe we'd kickstart <laughs> other types of projects or maybe right. we'd make other games. We weren't really sure. That's cool. That's, uh, I've you're not the first designer that I've talked to that was like, oh, I used to I used to take old games when I was a kid and rework them and make them better and like it just seems like this theme like it's I've always said I think game design is is like a talent that you're born with like singing or being an artist or or whatever I think there's I think you can be trained to do it but I think some people it's just is part of them like it just comes out of them as a creative outlet. Yeah, there's lots of different thoughts on creativity as far as like, do you have to have some 
talent to start with or can you be taught at all or if somebody has what seems to be a natural talent and they don't ever practice can somebody who has no natural talent practice enough to get better you know there's lots of schools of thought right the 10,000 hour theory and all yeah Yeah. I'm not really sure where I stand on all that it does seem (laughs) the one thing I know is that if you work at something if you work really hard at something even something creative you'll be better than if you hadn't done that Um, and so however that compares with other people I think definitely putting in the time uh, learning from other people and, and growing as best as you can is the best thing for you. You may never be an award-winning creative person in that field. I, I don't know. Sure. <laughs> sure. So, <laughs> uh, first game that you did was, am I right? That relic expedition was the the very first. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, so I, I had the privilege of getting a, a print and play copy of that and <laughs> cutting out hundreds of hexes and, yeah, you say getting a print and play copy like I mailed you a print and play copy. No, you made the print and play. I, yes. It <laughs> well, was... and, and I still tell this story all the time about print and play games don't make circles. The thought of <laughs> of you, we had a couple of reviewers early that that did that for us. And I am so very grateful for all your all you did back then. But the thought of you cutting out circles has sort of traumatized me. Uh, uh, you know, it will never, it will never leave me. That is a painful <laughs> I, thing to do to someone. Is to I make will them cut s- out circles. Yeah. I will say that it definitely made us ask more questions before we accepted print and play <laughs> games. <laughs> <laughs> like, can we see a preview of the files maybe, or <laughs> uh, things like that? But no, no, it was, uh, you know, all in all, it was well worth it because we really enjoyed the game. And I think the final product is it's still, you know, aesthetically and I mean, really top to bottom design wise, the gameplay, everything is really, really fun. Um, it's a gorgeous game to look at. I really like all the components, everything that you did with it. Um, but it was a big undertaking, you know, not obviously for people cutting out circles, but for you as well. <laughs> You know, it's a it was a very component intensive game for your first game. And now, you know, we're here in 2018 and Spy Club has just released, um, which I have my copy right next to me. I haven't opened it yet because I'm about to record an unboxing video. Uh, but I guess what have you learned from from that point of kickstarting Relic Expedition to, you know, there's been a few titles in between and now we've got spy club. Uh, I guess what's that journey been like for you over these last several years? It's really hard to think about all the things that I have learned through that (laughs) process. I mean, you mentioned relic expedition and its component size and just how important it is that the cost of the game to manufacture lines up with the gameplay experience and players expectations and and the theme expectations, and just that all of that lines up together. I think Relic Expedition for retail was probably more expensive than it ought to have been uh-huh. um, because of the costs and the markup in retail and kind of all that. So that's probably the biggest thing uh, that I have learned is just how to get at every step of the process. When a customer sees a product on the shelf, what they're expecting, when they pick it up and read the back of the box, how heavy is it? What does it say about the game? What are the play times, uh, the age, all of that to when they open it and to when they read the rules, to when they play it, to when they put it all back in the box, to have all of that experience feel right. That at no point you're like, oh, this was a hundred dollar game. Oh, it played in five minutes. Uh, (laughs) That's a bit not what people are expecting today. And and those aren't set in stone and those evolve. 
sure. over time. So there's not like hard and fast rules that people will never pay $100 for a $5 experience. That's not true. Um, but just understanding the game market, understanding how manufacturing works, how, th- how much things cost, what that means in retail. You know, so right now, Relic Expedition is not in retail anymore, but I'm able to sell it on my website at oh, closer to a more reasonable price, I think, for what people would expect because I'm just selling direct. And just that retail markup uh, right. is a hard thing to plan for. And at small print sizes, when, when you're doing a game yourself and you're just doing the minimum print order, you don't have a lot of flexibility or a lot of options. Every extra component makes a big difference. Um, and when I talk to people today, I mean, there's a popular formula that five times your retail price should be five times your landed cost. That's all of your manufacturing and freight to get it into your warehouse. Right. And at a small print run size, I mean, that just might not be possible. And yeah. that's just one thing that I've seen and talked to a lot of people about that. They're like, well, I'd have to charge $80 for my game. And it's like, well, if you're just printing a thousand units, you may not be able to get that markup. You may not be able to put it in retail. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, uh, and I think a lot of the, like, you know, like we said, Relic Expedition was very component heavy. I think we've seen recently, you know, there's been a lot of bigger publishers announcing things like, uh, you know, Fantasy Flight's announcing this key forge thing, this unique game system that they've contrived that's, you know, 1.4 quadrillion combinations <laughs> of a deck or however they right. came up with that. And I think as as publishers, you know, obviously they've got the money behind it to be able to do that. It's not going to cost them a lot. They're going to get their markup that they need and be profitable. But I think um, it's, I think there's a, a level of creativity that comes into the design process when you're an indie and you are, like you said, making a minimum order print run and you're trying to, you know, sustain that and, and kind of become viable as a, as a company, as a publisher. So yeah, I think, and if you were to look at the next game we did after Relic Expedition, it was Lanterns, the Harvest yeah, Festival. Uh-huh. And the components there are sheets of punch board and a deck of cards yeah. uh, without stretch goals. You know, that was sort of the, um, the level it was as an indie publisher, we can spend one time costs on artwork, uh, uh-huh. but we're going to keep our component costs as, as low as we can uh, to make a smart product. And so the game looks great on the table without yeah. oh, a yeah. lot of custom pieces um, because that was sort of what we could afford. It's like, well, we can afford to spend this artwork one time. And if the game does well, uh, we won't be uh, paying high manufacturing costs for every every print run. Uh, we did have a stretch goal to add some wooden components, which uh, favor tokens and lanterns uh, turned out really nicely. And yeah, really proud we were able to get, get those in the game. Uh, but yeah, just the, the base pledge originally was just punch board and cards and trying to figure out how far can we make punch board and cards go? I think that's the beauty of it is that's a great game too. You know, uh, relic expedition and lanterns both play very, very differently, but they're Mm -hmm. super enjoyable They're They look great on the table. Like you said, lanterns, you know, the artwork's beautiful. When you get that whole thing kind of sprawling out there, it's like, Oh, this is amazing. It's a great looking, uh, game. So, uh, it's, it's just, I find it, I find that facet of of publishing and game design just super interesting where uh, you are trying to you, like the game for you is almost 
the manufacturing and the components and and how to make that work like there's a, a game that's being played to make the game almost yeah game design and product design are two different well tasks uh, i mean different yeah. skills some people have both and some people have one and some people have the other and uh to me that's been a really enjoyable part of the of the publishing is you know, finding games that are really fun to play and figuring out how to make them into great products that have the right price point that have, uh, that meet customers expectations and deliver on that promise. When you pay a certain amount of money, you're expecting a certain kind of experience and trying to get all that to line up and to do, you know, as well as, as good as we can to, to get the games to look as good on the table as they can, you know, world's fair 1893 was the next game and we were able to add uh, custom, you know, Ferris wheel track. Uh, uh-huh. But again, that game is is mostly cards and punch board and wood cubes that sort of all come together with the art and the graphic design to have a nice table presence. Yeah, yeah. Just Very. with those minimal components again. Exactly. Um, so let me ask you, uh, we haven't really talked about Spy Club much. Um, what's, uh, where did this design come from? Uh, where where did the idea come from? How how did this game come together? Give us a little bit of a background of that. And I guess, you know, just kind of fill people in that maybe haven't played it yet or, or don't know much about it. Yeah, so Spy Club is a two to four player cooperative game. Players are playing young detectives uh, solving neighborhood mysteries. Uh, the game was designed originally by Jason Kingsley. He's done a lot of graphic design work uh, for me on Lanterns. Uh, He did some rule book layout on World's Fair 1893. And while we were finishing up all the files for World's Fair, uh, we were talking every day uh, during that process. And out of those talks came a design for the Lanterns expansion, which uh, Jason uh, designed and some design ideas for Spy Club. So Jason started that the real driver for the initial uh, inspiration was the double-sided card. So in Spy Club, uh, you're trying to collect sets of clues. Like to solve the suspect, you need to collect five uh, purple suspect cards, and then the game will tell you which of those suspects is correct. So you're um, doing hand management and set collection with these cards. But the cards are double-sided, and they don't have backs, they have two faces. And so one of the okay. actions you can take is to investigate the cards, which is to flip over one or more of the cards that are in your hand to sort of activate the other side of them. And so that was the original uh, spark for the design was around a game that had double-sided cards and what are all the, uh, what interesting choices could players have as you're trying to manage those? Because you end up with a hand of double, it has twice as many cards as it feels like and you don't know all of them. Uh, the theme was originally something different, but uh, Jason shared it with me, and we played. I played an early, early prototype with him uh, a few different times, and then at Unpub, right after that, a few months later, we sort of had a fully functioning working game that has, you know, I mean, it's changed a lot in the time we developed it, but sure. um, that was the the core design, and players were really responding well to it, so. We started from there. Now, in the game, you're trying to solve a mystery, and there's it's not deduction. The mystery sort of emerges. So the game will just, as you play the game, the solution will uh, evolve. It's not that there's a solution like Clue where you got cards in an envelope that you're trying okay. to deduce. Um, and there are five aspects of the case that you're trying to solve. The, the crime itself, you know, what crime is committed, an object involved, a location, the suspect who committed the crime, and their motive. And so you're trying to solve these five aspects of the crime. And as we started talking about it, I had the idea that we could turn this into a five game 
campaign system that each game you would sort of solve one of these five aspects. Uh, so it, it now has a campaign system where uh, you will sit down and play five games in a row and based on your decisions each game you will unlock new content. So it has a feel, a little bit of a feel of like a legacy game okay. um, or a campaign mode where you're unlocking new rules, new scenarios, new challenges, new objectives. Um, but it has a few key differences that nothing's destroyed. That's kind of the first one. You uh, can fully reset and replay. And there's no, I mean, some of them have some surprises, but you can replay all of these uh, modules. You can replay them over and over to try to solve the puzzle or get better at, at mastering them. So uh, it's not like they're one play and done. And over the five games, you will, based on how your case is evolving, will determine what you unlock. But you could unlock any of the mini modules. So there are 40 modules that come with the game. Okay. And in a campaign, you'll unlock four of them. So at the end of each game, you'll unlock a new module. Okay. So every campaign, you'll see four of these 40 modules. But they'll be very different. There's no pre-scripted uh, flow to how they come out. It all depends on which things you're solving in your cases. So my first campaign will be different than your first campaign. And I can play a few campaigns, you can play a few campaigns, and we can still get together and play a fifth campaign. And we might see one of the things one of us has seen. They're all replayable. Uh, but it'll take you in a group 10, play, 10 campaigns to get through all of the content if you want okay. to get through all of it. And so the idea of, of uh, an uh, individual mystery evolving over the course of a game, which turned into a mystery evolving over a campaign, really gave us a lot that we could play with as far as, you know, could we push the storytelling, the emerging narrative idea, which was there sort of not in the original theme, but very early when Jason switched it over to this theme. Uh, the idea that a story would emerge and that players would be able to tell it. Um, and a lot of the campaigns type games or the legacy type games, you don't see an emergent narrative. I mean, there's a little bit of difference if, you know, if you're, uh, what's happening in the East Coast or the West Coast in your story. There, there are some differences, but the story is been written by the designers and you sort of get to learn it or discover it. Sometimes there's branching yeah. paths, but but this one we really wanted to see how far could we push an emerging narrative. If if the if there were 40 modules and you just saw four of them as they unfolded, how would that affect the experience? And what would player, you know, if I'm telling you about my case where the neighbor stole the cake and you're like, oh well in my case the twins vandalized the game store, how with those rules and that, how would that feel to people to have that sort of be different? And, and the thing we found in playtesting is that even just playing one campaign and knowing that there were, you know, a bazillion other combinations that you might have had is a really powerful experience for players. That sounds really cool. Um, I'm, I'm super excited to play it obviously. And uh, I was wondering about that replayability because definitely a game that I feel like I want to play with my boys who I think would really love it you know, especially with the theme and just the, the way the artwork looks and everything. But then I, I also feel like it's something I could play with my gamer friends and, and we could really get into it and dig into it too. So uh, it's good to hear that there's some replayability there. There's some, uh, you know, it's not totally legacy where, like you said, you're destroying cards and things are being taken out of it and uh, it's really being shaped as you go. Well, yeah, and I mean, the kinds of games that we make, the kind of lighter family games or even, you know, people call them Gateway Plus games sometimes. Sure. Games that people will use to start a game night. One of the great things about them is that 
you can teach them to new people easily. And then those new people will buy them and play them with their family. And then yeah. they'll teach it to another family. And we've seen that we've had a lot of success with our games spreading virally like that. Um, but legacy games and, and in these other kind of one-time playable games, you can't really do that. And I've, I've told so many of my friends about pandemic legacy, about time stories, about yeah. the exit games, but I can't, take it over and play with them because I, right. I play it with my core game group. And so <laughs> uh, it's like, oh, you should get time stories and that's all. And then they, they don't. But every time I have a game night where I teach someone a new game, the somebody buys it on Amazon before they leave my house. And so uh, we wanted to, we felt like if you were going to make a new kind of reveal, unlock content game that was not based on an existing game, that this would be the way to try to get it to spread still to still have that I could teach it to a new group. And so you can play a campaign with your core group and then you can go introduce the game to someone else and play. It'll be your second campaign. You'll be seeing, you know, your fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth module. It'll be their first. They'll be seeing their first, second, third, and fourth, but it's still a new experience for everyone. And then they can get a copy and they can play and they can teach it to their friends and it can spread like that. So yeah, exactly what, what you're saying to like, you can play a campaign game with your kids and with right. your game group yeah. and, and both. Um, and then, you know, that, that was the goal. We wanted to see if we could make that work, if we could make a system that would really work like that. And I'm just so happy with how it's turned out and people are responding to it so well. Very, very cool. That's great. Um, and is it is it available in retail now or is it just fulfilling yes. to the backers? No, yeah. Yeah, no. We got it to backers uh, last month and okay. it is now in stores. Okay, awesome. Very cool. All right, so I I, I know we're getting close on time here, but I, I have a quick new little segment that I wanted to do at the end of the interview and it's called... That's how I roll. What I've done is I've curated 20 questions and I have a 20-sided die. Now, these questions aren't necessarily about gaming or anything, but you can give as short of an answer or as long as an answer, but I'm going to roll the die a few times and uh, we'll just see what happens. How's that sound? (laughs) I'm so bad at spontaneous things, but (laughs) this should be interesting. We'll give it a shot. (laughs) Here we go. I'm game for it. All right. Here we go. All right. I rolled a 14 and the question is, oh, this is an easy one. What's your favorite Netflix series? <laughs> that is easy. Stranger Things has been. Stranger. Uh, All right. I say that it's really my only Netflix series uh, with a full-time job and a family and a board game company on the side. It doesn't leave me a lot of time for watching. Understood. Uh, TV. So I try to watch only movies, which... Uh, you know, our sort of two hour experiences. Yeah. Uh, but I did watch all the stranger things and did very much enjoy it. There you go. I'm, I'm still struggling through it. Like my wife and I watched the first season and then we're like halfway through the second season and we've stalled, but I'm <laughs> in the same boat. You know, I freelance, I do a lot of different stuff and it's like, I don't have time to watch TV all the time. So I totally get that. All right, here we go. Next roll. Oh, I rolled a 20. How about that? <laughs> all right. Uh, I added this one in because I was talking to you today. And uh, the question is, what does the fox say? <laughs> My kids know this. They, they know very much. They can sing all the songs. So, hotty, 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 ho is one of the things the fox says. All right. I like it. <laughs> okay. I rolled a two. Okay. What is your number one pet peeve? 
Oh, my number one pet peeve. Yeah. What drives you crazy? This is going to sound so trivial, and maybe that's good. <laughs> I really dislike the fact that uh, our keyboards on our computers don't have curly quotes. They just have straight up and down quote marks, <laughs> which are like the inch and the foot sign. Right. And so all the time when you see things with beautiful typography, except they have the straight up and yeah. down tick marks wow. it really drives me crazy and then sometimes we're you know word microsoft word will curl them automatically but they don't always know which way to right, curl them. And right. sometimes you're writing seven inches and it like puts the curly quote <laughs> after it or or if you're doing like uh the word tis if you're writing poetry and it like does the curl the wrong way right right that stuff just drives me insane that is i've never thought of that before now it's gonna drive me crazy uh <laughs> There's got to be like, like I remember the days of like the ASCII like characters. Like, there's got to be like some kind of hidden weighted. I don't know. Maybe not. Yeah. So you can make it work if you wanted to, but most people don't know. Right. That it's and it's like fit. 17 keystrokes, just to yes. make. <laughs> yes. So yeah, that really ah uh, grates on me. But I'll copy and paste them or use special keys to get them in as many places as I can. But it's a lot of effort <laughs> to curl your quotes. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. All right. Let's do a few more here. Uh, let's see. I rolled a 10. Uh, what's your favorite video game? Uh, the one I've been playing the most recently is the Pandemic app on mobile. Oh, okay. <laughs> nice. I, I'm quite proud to say I just achieved the last achievement. Oh, wow. <laughs> so Look at you. I have achieved all the achievements. You have been playing it quite a bit then. <laughs> I have indeed. All right. A couple more. Here we go. Uh, oh, I rolled a 10. I can't ask you your favorite video game again. <laughs> How about an 8? Hey, folks, just a reminder, if you want to hear the rest of this interview, these last few questions that I roll for Randy, head on over to our Patreon page and become a patron of the Theology of Games site. For a dollar a month, you can get in on cool extra content. And of course, you can be a part of what we do. Okay, well, I think that's enough of those. Um, thanks for being a good sport with that. Nice. I think I did all right. I survived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, <laughs> that was great. Um, but before we, before I let you go, just uh, let people know where they can find Foxtrot Games if you're on social media, all, you know, wherever those channels are, website, all that stuff. Uh, just go ahead and take a minute to, to self and shamelessly uh, self-promote yourself. Yeah, so you can find us online at foxtrotgames.com and see all our games there. Uh, we're also on Facebook and Twitter at Foxtrot Games. Uh, we post news and other things there. Uh, if you just want to know more about me and what it's like to be a part-time board game publisher, you can follow me on Twitter at Randy Hoyt. That's R-A-N-D-Y-H-O-Y-T. Excellent, Randy. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, there it is, folks. That is it for this week. Now, I do have a little teaser for you as well. If you want to hear Randy answer even more of those questions in the That's How I Roll segment, then go ahead, head over to Patreon, get in on the dollar level, backer, patron level. <laughs> I'm using weird words. 
Uh, but get in on that level and you'll get the bonus content and we'll I'll post be posting there. Every time I do an interview, there's just a little bit more cool stuff that's going to be hitting over on Patreon. So uh, check that out. Like I said, you can get in super cheap and we really appreciate any support that you can give us. So there's that. Once again, want to remind you, follow us over on social media. And of course, if you're enjoying the show, we would be so, so grateful if you would share it with your friends, your loved ones, folks that you think, hey, I bet you would enjoy this too because you like board games and you like random topics and whatever else. So I would really, really appreciate if you'd share it with your friends. Of course, giving us a rating and a review on wherever you're listening, whether it's iTunes, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, wherever it is, that also helps us be found and heard from uh, by other people who might be interested. So appreciate you guys for doing all of that. Keep the shares coming. Keep the, the reviews and ratings coming. And uh, until next week, I'm out of here. I'm Jeremiah Isley. And it just so happens. That's how I roll. Thanks for rolling with us today. That's How I Roll is produced by Jeremiah Isley and brought to you by Theology of Games. If you liked what you heard today, take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Thanks for tuning in and drive safe.